Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my Right Fit Method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. A key component of my method is passion, our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of career success. My guest today, Dennis Meredith, is soaked in passion, but passion is not enough. Dennis and my other guests know how to harness their passion. They compete with themselves, raising the bar higher and higher. They excel in managing the process and walking down the right fit road to reach their goals. They know how to recognize right fits. They know how to recognize wrong fits. They know whether they can fix or not fix a wrong fit. They know when to walk away. They assume responsibility for their successes and failures. They say to themselves, it's all up to me. Throughout my own career as a medical school dean to heading a $60 million education program at the National Institutes of Health, and as the founder and CEO of Barrow Global Search, Inc., I have observed that figuring out right fits is extremely difficult for many people to do. As a result, they continue taking the wrong fit road and wonder why they are in wrong fit marriages, wrong fit careers, or wrong fit homes. The solution is simple. Stop asking who is the best and what is the best. Stop comparing and contrasting. If all your choices are wrong, and you pick one, which you designate as the best, you made a wrong choice. Picture a barrel of rotten apples. Grab the best one. What do you have? A rotten apple. To learn more about my Right Fit Method, continue listening to today's show, and after the show, visit winwithoutcompeting.com to read excerpts from my book. On to my guest today, Dennis Meredith, King of Scientific Communications. I will interview distinguished science writer and communicator Dennis Meredith, who is the author of Explaining Research, to be published by Oxford University Press on March 1st, 2010. Meredith, an adventurer, not only writes about science, but also lives it. He wrote an article which included photos of what was believed to be 
the Loch Ness Monster. This led to a New York Times-sponsored expedition to Loch Ness. Meredith served as the press officer on this expedition and wrote Search at Loch Ness. Meredith has had a fascinating career. He ventured on the Loch Ness expedition with Harold Doc Edgerton, inventor of the strobe light, prepared the historic news release announcing synthesis of the first artificial gene by Nobel Prize winner Har Gobind Korana and helped Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman explain his controversial opinions about the cause of the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. Meredith worked at some of the country's leading research universities, including MIT, Caltech, Cornell, Duke, and the University of Wisconsin. He has helped science journalists at all the nation's major newspapers, magazines, and radio and TV networks. Meredith also has written well over a thousand news releases and magazine articles on science and engineering over his prestigious career. His scientific training as a chemist, 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 chemist and biochemist, coupled with his passion for communicating accurate scientific findings to the public, led him to create and develop with the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS, the International Research and News Service, Eureka Alert, which now links more than 4,500 journalists to news from 800 subscribing research institutions. The AAAS honored Meredith in 2007 by electing him a fellow for exemplary leadership in university communications and for important contributions to the theory and practice of research communications. Here are some adventures that Meredith will share as his career unfolds, tramping across the California desert with seismologists recording microquakes for clues to the shifting crust, standing breathless atop a 14,000-foot Hawaiian mountain peak with astronomers breaking ground for an immense telescope to peer deeper into the cosmos than ever before, and watching a 50-foot research balloon looking like a giant quivering jellyfish soar into space carrying an instrument to detect gamma rays from distant astronomical objects. I will uncover what really goes on behind the curtain of science and what people need to know about scientific breakthroughs. Welcome, Dennis, to Win Without Competing. Thank you, Arlene. Thanks very much for having me on the show. You grew up in a small Texas Gulf Coast town, surrounded by prowling complexes of refineries. You experienced soggy humidity and endured vicious hurricanes, but did not evacuate. Tell us about that. Well, my dad worked as the supervising wire chief for the telephone company, the local phone company. So it was his job to keep the phones running even during a hurricane. So during hurricanes, we bunkered down in this, in this huge brick telephone building amidst all these clattering 
telephone switches and rode out the hurricanes. You were the original geek admits a culture of football, duck hunting, and beer drinking. Describe your geekness and how your <laughs> mother encouraged you. I, I invented uh, geekiness before it was a word, I think. Um, the closest I ever got to a football field was blowing holes in it with my rockets that didn't work out somehow. Um, but fortunately, my mother uh, tolerated me, tolerated my geekiness, and tolerated my collections of turtles and snakes and plants and bugs and rocks. And she encouraged me to, to, to learn about science and to read. Probing a bit further, you mentioned about the fact that you were fascinated by rockets and built your own. What happened when you used your dad's gin as rocket fuel? <laughs> yes, I, had, I was building solid-fuel rockets, and I thought, well, maybe I should try a liquid-fueled rocket. So I stole some of my dad's gin and uh, tried to see how it would burn. Well, he discovered it, and he declared that if I were to steal any more of his gin, he would pour blue food color into my aquarium, and that shut that right down. Were you afraid that your fish would be killed? Well, I was, but fortunately my dad knew that blue, blue food coloring was, was uh, non-toxic and that I would just end up with some blue fish, but it, it convinced me that I didn't need to take his gin anymore. He did a good job then of teaching you in an interesting way. Yes, he did, and, and I have to say that my mother... Uh, really taught me about words. And, and one of the things that I remember most fondly was she told me that, Dennis, once you learn a word, it's yours to keep for the rest of your life, and nobody can take it away. And so after that, I decided to get rich on words. And your mother is 97, am I correct, Dennis? Yes, she's 97. She lives in an assisted living uh, uh, place in Texas, and she's very happy and she's uh, uh, have enjoying her, her, uh, her later years. And I expect she's very proud of you. She says she is, and she even uh, has forgotten all the times that I uh, brought snakes and plants into the house and tried to blow up outhouses and such. Well, I guess that she actually wanted to encourage your creativity and recognized early that you were a divergent thinker. Yes, she did. Uh, she was very tolerant of, of all the experiments that I was doing, and they bought me chemistry sets, and, and uh, they encouraged me when, when my experiments went wrong, and they uh, just sort of mildly uh, scolded me when, when I tried things that weren't very appropriate for uh, that area of the country. You began to write early, fascinated by the power and beauty of words. In grade school, you wrote an essay and won an essay contest for Education, Teach of Freedom. What was the message of your essay, its significance to your, and its significance to your career development? Well, the, the message of the essay was that, that getting education is really key to the, is, is really the basis of our, our freedom, the basis of our republic, and that we really do need to have uh, enough education for everybody, low-cost education. But that was the direct message. But the, the message was to me was that I could get rewarded for actually writing, for doing something that I loved so much, and that just that I still remember to this day. 
How did you get the idea for the essay? Well, I was that? given. Go ahead. Yeah, that's yeah. So go ahead and explain how you got the idea. Well, the 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 uh, topic was given to me by the people who ran the contest, but then I took took it and ran with it and began to think about what education meant to me as as a grade school child and what it meant to my teachers and what it meant to the to the uh, the community around me, and that's why I, I won the award. See, how old were you at that time? I couldn't have been more than nine or ten. That's pretty impressive that you were able to do that type of thinking, I believe, at that age. Well, I, I think I, I just love to write for, for, from, a, for an early, from an early age. And uh, later I got into a, a sport, a writing sport, called Ready Writing. And in Ready Writing, you walk into a room, they give you a topic, and you sit down and you write for an hour. And that really taught me that I deeply enjoyed writing and I deeply enjoyed the intellectual engagement of inventing uh, inventing uh, phrases, inventing topics, inventing words uh, to to explain things. Why did you enter the University of Texas as a chemistry major, even though you knew your primary passion was writing? Well, I I knew I loved science, but I knew also knew that all the people around me, where I grew up in Port Arthur, Texas made their living with chemistry. They were chemists in the refineries. And so my dad said, well, you know, you can write on the side uh, if you want. You can write books or whatever you want to write, but you really should learn chemistry. And so I sort of shoehorned myself into this chemistry major, even though it didn't quite feel like, well, the right fit. So even though it wasn't the right fit, you did what your dad had suggested, but then... Something happened where you were able to get back to your passion. What was it? Well, I became a senior, and I was still getting my degree in chemistry, and I took a writing course, an English course, and I got to write essays, and I began to write essays about science, and I began to publish these essays in the university magazine. And that all of a sudden felt right. It just felt like it was something that I was supposed to do. And so I knew I had this passion, but as a senior in, in a town in Texas, in the University of Texas in Austin, I didn't know where I could take this passion. It was the chance discovery of an ad in Science Magazine that changed your life. What did the ad say? Well, it said that there was ex this exotic place called Wisconsin, and this exotic university called the University of Wisconsin, and they had this very strange program that taught you what's called science writing. Now, I knew I loved science, and I knew I loved writing, but I had never, ever put the two together. And so I applied for the program and got in. How did you feel when the acceptance came in the mail? Oh, I was elated. I was ecstatic. I, I knew that all of a sudden this is what I was supposed to do. Um, it, it just was, it, everything fell into place. How did your family feel when you said that you'd be moving? Well, first of all, they were a little suspicious about me going up to Yankee Land. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know what was north of the Mason-Dixon land, the uh, Mason-Dixon line. Um, and, you are, and, and you're speaking to a Yankee, so that's why uh, Yes, I'm I am, and I married a beautiful Wisconsin lady, by the way. Aha. Uh -huh. um, so anyway, I was headed north, and they didn't know quite what that meant. And then they, they were looking at this science writing thing I was going to take, and they weren't quite sure what that was. They knew it wasn't chemistry, 
uh, and they knew it was writing, so they weren't sure what I was going to be doing. But nevertheless, they allowed you to go. Yes, they did. They encouraged me. They said, you, you have to follow your, follow your dream, follow what, you, what your passion is. How old were you at that time? Oh, I must have been no, no more than 20, 21. You left Texas for the first time, heading to the University of Wisconsin in your rattle-trap Corvair Monza <laughs> with a basket full of old shoes sitting beside you. Right. When you arrived at the university, they showed you into an office that matched your car. Yes, it was as, it was as shabby as my car, but it was heaven for me. It was, in your words, your home. Yes. I, I walked in, and there were, I was surrounded by other writers, and there was this strange machine that I'd never used before called a typewriter. And they told me, here, you start writing on this, and then we'll see what happens. How did you feel using the strange machine, the typewriter? <laughs> well, I started hunting and pecking, and gradually there was less hunting and more pecking, and I learned to use uh, four fingers and a thumb rather than two fingers. And so ever since then, I've been hunting and pecking very fast with four fingers and a thumb. What did you do that propelled your science writing career? Well, I began to go out and talk to scientists at the university and ask them what they were doing. And they were very gracious uh, to a, a young, uh, wet-behind-the-ears writer. And they would tell me what, I, what they were doing and what they discovered, and I began to write news releases. And then became the, the ultimate news release that uh, we broke a major story uh, from the university. And you did break a major story. Tell us about the bone marrow transplant with tissue matching. Well, up until that time, bone marrow transplants had been, had been shots in the dark. Uh, people were receiving bone marrow transplants to restore their immune systems, but many died. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a scientific uh, a procedure. But this brilliant young immunologist named Fritz Bach at the University of Wisconsin back in the late 60s discovered that he could match people's tissues to the bone marrow transplants. And all of a sudden, all these people could be saved. And so my, my colleague at the, at the time, Linda Weimer, and I wrote a news release from the university announcing this amazing breakthrough. And it felt like it was such a thrill to be able to tell the world about something that would save countless lives in the future. I must ask you this burning question, Dennis. What happened to that basket full of old shoes? <laughs> I, I wore them. Believe me, I wore them. I had to have all, I had to keep all my old shoes because I couldn't afford new ones. So uh, if they had any uh, sole left at all or any upper, I wore them until they were out. I hope you can afford good shoes today, Dennis. Yes, I can. <laughs> I have, thank you. I have one. I have one. One pair of each. Each that I need: um, hiking shoes and dress shoes and sneakers. So I'm I'm okay with shoes now. Terrific. After you received your master's degree, you took your first job as the science editor for the University of Wisconsin. Your Rhode Island. Rhode Island. Yes. Uh huh. Why was that position the right fit, and how did you pitch yourself to get it? Well, I met with the president of the university at the time, Werner Baum. He was he was a meteorologist, 
and he happened to be coming to Milwaukee, which was near where the University of Wisconsin is, to, 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 uh, for a meeting. And I went and talked to him, and immediately I knew that here was a scientist who understood what, writers wanted, what science writers wanted to do. So I told him that I was very eager, that I loved science, I loved writing, and I wanted to write about the university. And the University of Rhode Island is well known as a, as a small but very, uh, very high-quality research university that is a very, uh, uh, very uh, uh, good university, and it's a, a credit to, this universe, to, the, to the state of Rhode Island. But he told you something important. My understanding uh, with respect to hiring you had to do with the fact that he wanted you to finish your master's degree. Yes, I, I was so eager that I said, I'll come to work with for you immediately. I want to start writing. And he was a very wise man. He said, no, I will hire you in six months. You go back, you finish your master's degree, and then you come. And he knew that, that if I came at the time, I would be, you know, I'd do a good job, but I wouldn't have that degree. He knew that my, my future depended on having the master's degree. And so unlike some of my colleagues who took, uh, took uh, jobs early and didn't get their master's degree, thanks to Werner Baum, I got my degree and it, it helped me in, in my future career. So you believe that if he had not done that, you would not have finished the degree? Oh, no, I, I wouldn't have uh, because I was supposed to write a, a thesis. And so many of my friends had gone off and taken jobs in newspapers and magazines and universities without writing their thesis. And when you start getting a paycheck, it's awfully difficult to go back and sit in the room and write a thesis to get your degree. Especially considering the shoes situation. <laughs> yes, I was running out of shoes at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I needed a paycheck to buy shoes. Absolutely. How did your next employer, MIT, learn about you? Well, while, while I was at the University of Rhode Island, as, as a science writer at the university, not as a journalist, I wrote a series of articles on nuclear power plant siting. And the reason was that, you, that Rhode Island was considering uh, uh, having a nuclear power plant built in, in, its, in its area. So I wrote this series of articles, and a small weekly newspaper published the series. And the, the, I got the science writer, and AAAS Science Writing Award, American Association for the Advancement of Science Science Writing Award, which is almost never given to public information officers but to journalists. So the, uh, the, the head of the news service at MIT said, well, here's this public relations guy who got a Journalism Science Writing Award. Maybe we should recruit him. And so what happened next? Well, he called up and he said, gee, would you like to come to MIT? And, of course, I jumped at the chance because as good as the University of Rhode Island is, MIT is sort of the Valhalla for science and engineering. It's the, the place that every science and engineer wants to go to. Am I correct, Dennis, that throughout your career you were someone that was always sought after? Well, I hope so. Um, I, I, I get calls from very nice people who are willing to employ me, so I guess I'm <laughs> sought after. And they put up with me after I'm there, so I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting because when we talked prior to the show, that was the sense that I got that you were always uh, recruited from different institutions mm -hmm. rather than you searching per se for a new position. It, generally, that's that's the way it was. I, I tell people I I couldn't hold a job, but 
But I think it's that people uh, were kind enough to call up and say, gee, you want to come work with us. And it was say it, that way at MIT and then when I went to Caltech and then uh, to Cornell and then to Duke. At MIT, you quickly rose from science writer to managing editor of MIT's Technology Review. Tell us about the Loch Ness Monster. Well, while I was at the, at the at Technology Review as, as, as managing editor, these, these, these strange men came up with these photographs of what looked like animals under Loch Ness. And there was all this controversy about them, whether, whether the photographs were real or fake. And, and I knew that the, the, the guys who made the photographs were MIT graduates. So I said, well, it's, let's, let's just look at the pictures. Let's publish an article that reveals these photographs and explains them and see what people think. So we published the article, and sure enough, the New York Times became interested in, pub, in uh, promoting, in, in, in sponsoring an expedition to Loch Ness, and I ended up going to Loch Ness with my wife and my three-year-old daughter and sitting on the edge of the loch looking for the Loch Ness Monster. And then what happened subsequently? Did you find the Loch Ness Monster? Well, um, we saw, we, we didn't get any photographs, but we saw large, uh, uh, saw sonar uh, reflections from large moving objects in the loch, about 20, about 20 feet long. And, you know, that's not the, uh, the, ultimate, the ultimate proof. It still hasn't uh, appeared, the ultimate proof of the existence of the Loch Ness Monster. But I wrote a book about all the people who were looking for the monster and all the things that people had seen in the past, these large moving objects in the lock, and we published the book. Tell us about the people that joined you on the expedition, because I know they were a fascinating group. It was a fascinate, it was it was indeed a fascinating group, and it was a sort of an eclectic group of, of scientists and, and, and uh, other people. There was Robert Rines, uh, who it was a patent lawyer and engineer, and who had been sponsoring Loch Ness expeditions for many years as, as part of this Academy of Applied Science. And then there was the great Doc Edgerton, who had invented the strobe light, and he actually taught Jacques Cousteau how to use underwater cameras, and he came along. He was delightful. And then there was uh, Charlie Wyckoff, who had spent his early years taking photographs of, of hydrogen bomb blasts, among other things, and had invented new kinds of film. And it was really great to be <laughs> to be trapped in Loch Ness with these this this great bunch of scientists. And I'm gathering the book must have been terrific, even though the outcome was not perhaps maybe what you had hoped for. But the story <laughs> of it apparently was fascinating. I know that you had told me when we talked prior to the show that when scientists do research, the process may be fascinating, but the outcome is not necessarily what they had hoped for. Would you say that this is akin to that? Oh, yes. Uh, a friend of mine said this was the best almost shot a bear book he'd ever read. So, <laughs> so I, I look to tell the story of the people because science is, is fascinating, but it's fascinating in part because it's messy. And it's, a, it's a, a story of what people do and how people search for things and try to understand nature. From MIT, you went to Caltech, Cornell, and then Duke. Yes. Always having scientific adventures and working with world-class scientists. 
Yes. Looking back, can you tell us about a memorable adventure that you had at Caltech? Oh, my favorite was uh, one night I was staying up with a, a young astronomer, and we were sitting in the control room of the 200-inch Palomar Telescope in, on Palomar Mountain in San Diego. And this telescope weighs 500 tons, but it's so delicately balanced you can move it with a little finger. And he, he had aimed this telescope at a quasar billions of light years into, out of, in, into space. And a quasar is a huge black hole. It's a giant uh, a hole in, in space that eats everything. And we were sitting there watching the light streaming from this black hole, I mean, measuring the light. And we were very quiet, you know, quietly watching the line, the, the graph line, and all of a sudden it, it hiccuped a little bit. And he looked up at me and he said, oh, it ate a star. <laughs> so I knew that billions and billions of years ago, a black hole had swallowed an entire star the size of our, our sun, and it had only burped. Cornell, a memorable story from there. Ah, Cornell, we, one time we went to the giant radio telescope at Arecibo. Now, this is a radio telescope that is the size of an entire football field. It is immense, and they use it to listen for, for radio waves from, from cosmic bodies, from, from outer space, and, and also to listen for the signs of extraterrestrial intelligence. So we went up in a helicopter to take a photograph of this giant radio dish, and unfortunately, the helicopter pilot was a former... Uh, a former military pilot and loved to do barrel rolls and loved to do acrobatics or rather aerobatics and so he decided that we needed to get a really good look at this telescope to take a picture of it so he banked the telescope on the side uh, he, he banked I'm sorry banked the helicopter on its side and I was slammed against this plexiglass uh, window looking straight down into this telescope getting the same vision of the telescope that uh, the radio waves from outer space get and I was not pleased with that Duke. Now, he is my favorite story from Duke. Tell us about <laughs> the bats. Oh, there's a great uh, organization that's based at Duke called the Organization for Tropical Studies. And one time they took us out into the Costa Rican rainforest to catch bats. And the idea was you, you, you catch and release these bats to study them, to make sure that they're healthy, to understand the ecosystem and, and, and their environment. And so we went out, to, in, out into this Costa Rican rainforest in the middle of the night. It was pitch black. We were surrounded by snakes and jaguars and God knows what else. And with these little, our little head, headlamps, we put up mist nets and we, we catch, caught bats. We would sit in the dark until we heard a bat hit, go in, run into a mist net, and then we'd very gently, very gently uh, extricate the bat from the net. And they was, these were mostly little Honduran white bats. They looked like little balls of cotton. And so we'd very carefully take the little bats and spread their wings and do our measurements. And then we had to reward them for being caught because they were a little upset. So we would give them baby food, banana, strained banana. And you'd put a little bit of baby food on your finger, and you'd hold it up, and the little bat would lick the baby food off. And then you'd hang the bat on a nearby tree to let it rest before it took off again. And so over the period of the, of the night, working in this, this dense, dark rainforest, we caught a whole bunch of bats. And by the time we were over, but by the time it was finished, we had a tree full of bats. It looked like a Christmas tree, only instead of ornaments, there were hanging bats. 
Now, I know that you didn't kill the bats. Oh, no, no, no. No. They were and very healthy, and they, they uh, went off into the night to go about their business full of banana. And the significance of bats for our environment is what, Dennis? Well, you have to understand how healthy all the organisms are in a rainforest to, to put together the puzzle of the health of a rainforest so you can, you can preserve it. And the bats are very important uh, predators in this rainforest, so we needed to know that they were growing well, that they were healthy. So unfortunately, you have to catch them in nets, but it's a gentle process. And when it's over, all these little pieces of data go into computers, go into simulations so they can understand the health of the rainforest. You've worked with celebrity scientists, but unlike celebrity actors, they are not part of our daily media frenzy. Why not? Well, I think that scientists don't have a culture of explanation. Typically, an athlete has news conferences. They explain what they're doing. Uh, Act, athlete, actors, when they have a movie coming out, they go on the, the, uh, the public publicity tours and so forth. But scientists and engineers are, are very dedicated people, but they are dedicated to their laboratory research, and they think of communication and explanation only way down the list of priorities. Well, also, too, don't they think about it in terms of they're going to write their scientific articles when they really have something significant to report so that they're not into perhaps sharing much in the way of preliminary findings? That's exactly right. Um, they they uh, work for years on, on experiments. And in fact, most people don't understand that the huge majority of experiments are failures. Scientists and engineers work with failure constantly. And ultimately, they succeed, and then they publish it and once they published it in a scientific journal, to them, that's what all that they've needed to do. They don't understand that you have to explain work beyond your own colleagues in order to have it be, have an impact, the kind of impact that it deserves. What do we need to know about scientific breakthroughs? Well, most so-called breakthroughs depend on a, on a huge foundation of previous research. Um, Every scientist stands on the shoulders of the many, many scientists that have become, come before him or her. Also, a so-called breakthrough can take years or even decades to have an effect. So when you see something on the news about a breakthrough in medicine or a breakthrough in, in uh, uh, engineering, it's going to take a long time. And also, many of these so-called breakthroughs are done with, with animal studies, with mice, or even with, with cultures, with, with tissue cultures. And the difference between a mouse and a human is enormous. So a drug that's a, that has an effect on a, on a mouse, that, that cure cancer in a mouse, may or may not have any effect on humans. So there's a long road between a so-called breakthrough and a practical, uh, a practical product. And secondly, all science is tentative. The breakthrough today may be proven dead wrong tomorrow. And so whenever you hear of a breakthrough, think, take it with a large chunk of salt. So that's what the public must do when they're listening to the so-called uh, findings that we should be then acting on in terms of making changes, would you say? Uh, yes, I would advise waiting until 
um, until a lot of evidence is has, is in. Waiting till uh, waiting till people are sure that a, uh, that a breakthrough in in say a drug that works in mice has been applied to humans. Wait till there's a large scale clinical study with humans. Um, you you just need to take it with take it with uh, as I said a, a bunch of salt. And, and wait for the for the uh, all, a lot of scientists to to confirm work that is a so-called breakthrough. Why would you recommend a career in science? And do we need more scientists? And in what areas? Well, sci- what scientists really don't tell people is that science is an enormous amount of fun. Scientists have more fun than, than they're absolutely willing to admit. Because when you think about it, you walk into a laboratory or you walk out into a field to do field research, and you're doing something that nobody has done in the history of the world. You're looking for for a a discovery, looking to make a discovery that is the first time it's happened in the history of the world. And that is a real, uh, uh, it's a real, uh, uh, just an enormous joy to do science. So I, I would advise people that if you're in for, if you want to uh, have adventures, uh, intellectual adventures and scientific adventures, science and engineering are the way to go. Do you believe that we have some particular areas of science that are underserved? I, I do think that that there there are some areas. Um, I would, what I'd suggest doing is is to follow follow what you think is right, follow what feels right to you. Um, there are some areas that they're underserved, but um, I, th- I think it's up to, say, government to encourage people to get into those areas. Uh, for example, phys- physics, basic physics. A lot of um, uh, a lot of the basic sciences are underserved, and the reason is that they're so difficult. First of all, they're difficult to get into, but secondly, the people who do basic science have a very hard life. They don't make a lot of money. They work long, hard hours. And they work for many years to get their Ph.D. They're very dedicated people. And so those kinds of areas that, that don't seem to have a direct uh, application to, to products are, are, are very underserved. But what's important to understand is that all of basic chemistry, all of basic physics, these, are the, uh, these come up with the underlying principles uh, that, that are important for the development of drugs later, for the development of all kinds of, of products. So... The people who build the, the foundation of science and engineering uh, are the ones that are, are, are largely unsung in terms of uh, people recognizing that their discoveries are, will lead to practical benefits. So it sounds like you, from, of course, your years of experience, are encouraging of those people that have a scientific interest to explore and to see which aspect of science they feel passionate about. Is that correct, Dennis? That, that's exactly right. And, th- and there are a lot of ways to do that. You can start out, you can, if you're an undergraduate student, you can volunteer in a laboratory to just see what it's like to do laboratory work. Uh, if you think you'll be interested in, in, uh, in field work, you can volunteer for research expeditions. For example, the Earthwatch Institute sponsors uh, uh, sponsors expeditions in which lay level people can get involved in science you can uh, uh, you can start out if you're not sure you want to be a scientist you can get a, uh, a bachelor's degree and be a lab technician and then go on for your master's and your PhD and, and work your way up in science so there, there are lots of ways to get into it 
and to also initially test it out and not spend a lot of years and then to find out that you don't want to do uh, what's required to do to succeed in that profession. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, um, I have run into some scientists who have gotten all the way to their postdoctoral fellowships, and they, they knew that they loved science, but they wanted to write. And they come to me and, I, and they say, you know, I'm just, I'm just not comfortable. I just don't know what's going on. And I recognize that because I felt that, that same thing when I was in, in chemistry. And I encourage them. And I've had several who've now gone on to be science writers and who are doing, who are doing an extraordinary job. Well, at least they figured out what was their right fit. So in other words, their time wasn't wasted. They just had to use their expertise in another way. That's and, exactly right, yes. Yeah, and physicians do that, lawyers do that, uh, nurses do that. Now, your upcoming book, Explaining Research. Why did you write Explaining Research to be published by Oxford University Press on March 1st? Well, over 40 years of working with scientists, I realized that I never, ever heard a scientist ask the following question. Who needs to know about this piece of research? They'll typically, they would publish, publish it in a scientific journal, and I would come to see them about doing a news release, and they'd be very happy about doing a news release. They'd be very cooperative. But they never thought strategically about how this work needs to be disseminated to a broad range of audiences who need it, who need to know about it. And this is not just the lay public, but it's legislators and students and educators and other people who aren't in the scientific field. Well, they had this, they lack, as I said earlier, they lack this, this culture of explanation. But more importantly, and also importantly, I should say, they didn't have the tools. They didn't know what good, good journalism, what constituted good journalism. They didn't know how to do websites or blogs or give, give lay-level talks. And so I wanted to put together one book, a comprehensive book, that they could use to give them all these, that would give them all these tools to reach these audiences that were very important, not only for their own work, but for the success of their, uh, of their, of their fields. Well, it is true if they do outstanding research that has applicability to the public and they're not able to disseminate the information, it's really lost. That's exactly right. It's the old thing about a tree falling in the forest. If you make a research discovery and it's not disseminated in the right way to, to the right people, then it's not going to benefit society. What would you say is the significance of your book to our listeners who will not be or who are not uh, primarily scientists? Mm -hmm. They would be the lay public. Mm -hmm. Well, look at it this way. If, if there's a book that teaches scientists how to explain the complications of, of their work, which is very, can be very arcane, it can be very complicated, then people who are not scientists, I'm hoping, will, will find the book useful to explaining anything, to, to explaining uh, you know, their business, to explaining uh, what they're trying to do uh, in, as educators. I'm, I'm hoping that this will, this will sort of blossom from scientists to a large number of non-scientists who just want to know how to explain clearly and engagingly to audiences what, what it is they're doing. Well, also, too, it could be people who are professionals that have 
difficult information to communicate and don't know how to communicate it. Yes. Um, one of the classics, of course, are lawyers. Right. Uh, everyone knows that lawyers uh, have very di- have great difficulty explaining in, in plain language what it is they're trying to say, except, of course, for trial lawyers who are very effective. But there are a lot of professions who who need to reach a broad range of audiences. And, and this is not just for, for just to to uh for their ego's sake it's to make their careers more successful and make their uh their communications more effective i remember when i was a dean in the medical school at the state university of new york at stony brook yeah and we had a grant to improve the faculty's lecturing skills mm-hmm. and we would videotape each faculty member, and I would meet on a one-to-one basis with them and talk about how to improve their lecturing. Mm -hmm. What fascinated me was that it wasn't uncommon for the medical students during the course of the lecture to get up and walk out. (laughs) They walked out because they couldn't understand the lecture. Yep. And so I would say to the physician, well, what were your thoughts when you observed the medical students walking out? And the answer was, I can't spoon feed them. <laughs> so there's some convincing there, Dennis, yes. that one needs to speak in a way that everyone can understand you. Yes, absolutely. There was a fascinating study recently, uh, excuse me, a survey of employers, thousands of employers, and they asked them what are the what are the characteristics, what are the qualities that you look for in a prospective employee. Number 1 was communication. It was not uh knowledge, it was not uh it was not the ability to work in groups, it was not creativity. Number 1 was communication. So I would say to these people who are giving these arcane speeches that you are actually hurting your career by doing this. It's not just that you're refusing to spoon feed some medical students. You're actually damaging your career by not by not cultivating the the, the uh, uh, talents that you need to cultivate to communicate with, to use to communicate. Well, I agree with you. And also, too, um, when I'm coaching clients, a large part of the coaching time is spent in terms of communication. Mm-hmm. Communication in terms of the resume, communication in terms of speaking to the employer, so that both in writing and in speaking, having a consistent brand, and then how do you communicate that? That's right. So that there is no question that communication has to be number one. Well, I'm very excited and looking forward to reading your book. Could you share your website with us? And also I know that Oxford University Press has a blog as well. Mm-hmm. So if you can give us some information about your website and maybe tell our listeners how they could navigate to find the blog, Dennis. My my website, fortunately, is explainingresearch.com, explainingresearch.com. And not only does the website have basic information about the book, 
but they, I have a lot of other resources that will help people to communicate. For example, I have tip sheets on how people can, uh, can talk to the media and how they can uh, prepare for crises. And, and there's, there's a lot more material than just about the book. And then there's a blog that, I, that I've started. It's a brand new blog called researchexplainer.com. So ah, the I website aware is of that. Terrific. Research Explainer is where I basically cover my butt. <laughs> okay. There were things that I, that I either forgot to put in the book or they happened after the book went to press. And so I'm able to go, go to Research Explainer and just talk about new developments in, in communicating research and communicating other things that people need to know about. And in terms of finding the blog on um, Oxford University Press, would they just go to Oxford's website and uh, click away? Yes, I would go to OUP.com. That's OxfordUniversityPress.com, but their, their uh, website is OUP.com. And there's, uh, there's opportunity to, to access the blog there. And I, I'm sure there's opportunity to subscribe to email newsletters about Oxford's books. Outstanding, because I know that there'll be information there about uh, your book. Yes, but I put an, a, a lot on the uh, explainingresearch.com website that people would uh, would be would find interesting. Wonderful. And, and are they able to email you as well uh, through your blog on your website? Yes, there's a contact uh, form on the website that you can email me, and I welcome any emails, and I'm happy to help people in any way I can with their communications uh, needs and, and answer their questions. Throughout your career, you have set the standard against which no one can compete. Do you compete with yourself or against others? Oh, I very much compete with myself. Tell us how you go about doing that. I know you raise the bar higher and higher. How do you set the goals and then decide how much higher you can raise the bar? How do you know how to adjust yourself? Because well, you've been I'll, adjusting I'll, yourself a long time. <laughs> well, explaining research is actually a very good example. It started out, honest to God, it started out as a pamphlet, a short pamphlet. And it was going to be a pamphlet about how researchers could talk to the media. Well, then I began to think, well, there are many other, other audiences that researchers have that, that are actually in many cases more important to them than, than just the media. And maybe they want to talk to legislators, they want to talk to their colleagues. And then it began to, the book began to expand. And then I realized that they need to have all the tools. They need to, have to know about giving talks, giving posters, having websites, doing blogs, email newsletters, Twitter, all these, uh, doing videos, doing audio. And this, I began to set the bar for the book higher and higher until it went from a short pamphlet to a 380-page book. And so I, I knew that that was a, a very high hurdle, but I needed to do it. I, I knew that my own, for, my own, for my own purposes, I needed to, to overcome that hurdle. So initially, you didn't intend to create a comprehensive book if you had in mind first a pamphlet. Right. And then you saw, I guess, the possibilities. See, that, that's what I find interesting. You know, a lot of people don't see possibilities because they don't think divergently. Yeah. They have, you know, they're going down 
one road, one path, and they're not going to veer off to explore. That's you, exactly right. An adventurer started veering off. Oh, well, I guess I'll go to Twitter. I guess I'll go here, there, Facebook. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Well, if I had stayed as a chemist and, and stayed on that path, it, as you said, it would not be the right fit. Um, I, I had a blueprint for what I wanted to do. I wanted, I loved to write, and I loved science, but I didn't know how to fill in that blueprint. And as that, as the pathway became clearer, I was willing to edit that blueprint, to change it, to to make it more of a fit for my own for my own needs and my own interests. Well, that's what I'd like to talk about next in terms of these blueprints. You know, for many, it is very difficult to figure out right fits either selecting careers or jobs. When do you think you began to create right-fit blueprints for yourself which, in which you articulated your standards? Do you th- I, to me, I believe it was when you were very young, from our conversation prior to the show, I got that sense about you. Yes. From the time, I think from the time that I was a little boy when my mother said you could any word that you learn will be yours. I began to love words. I began to love to write. And and I knew from that time that I had to write. I always ask young writers, if, who, people, young people who want to go into writing, do you have to write? And the good writers, the ones who are real writers, would answer, yes, I have to write. And so I knew I had to write. And I knew that I had to know about science. I loved science. And so that's how... I began to form, to crystallize what would be a right fit for me. And so would you say you were seven, eight years old when that started? Oh, yeah, about eight or nine maybe, when when I began to understand what I wanted to do. Because I think that people who do that, start at an early age, know their blueprint, know their passion, but those people really are very fortunate. There are some people who spend their whole lives trying to figure out their core identity. So yes. I think that your mother really did you an outstanding service by encouraging you. That's certainly true. And another thing I recommend that people take chances. If it looks like it, you're, it's a, if it's something that will take you in a direction that feels right, that feels like it's part of the fit that you want to, for your life, then take a chance. I crawled into a little, uh, to a uh, rattletrap car and drove 1,000, 1,500 miles north to Wisconsin because I felt that that was the right thing to do. It just, it was a chance I took. I think that that comment will help people who are not naturally uh, bent toward Mm risk-taking. Because clearly to be an entrepreneur, you need to be a risk-taker. Oh, yes. And I think the most successful entrepreneurs and most successful people in life are are those that recognize that a risk is the right risk to take. It it feels like it's it's a risk that that is what you want to do. It's toward, going toward what you want to do. Absolutely. You excel in pitching yourself and taking charge. How did you learn these skills? Well, part of it was I, 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 when I learned to write, as I learned to write, one of the things that I realized that it's not that I want to write for people. 
it's that what I want to write for pe- what, write what people want to read, and I think this this is, has a broader context in that when you're trying to pitch yourself, you have to put yourself in your audience's shoes, uh, whether they're old shoes or new shoes, and you have to ask yourself, <laughs> what does your audience want to know, and, and how do you match? what information you have to give and that you want to give with what they want to know. And also, what form do they want this information in? How, how can you shape uh, the information so that it resonates with them, so that it's something that fits what they want to know about? And how, how do you, how do you uh, shape it, organize it? How do you use, what words do you use? So you, you have to shape your, your message uh, to, for the audience, and then once you're doing that, you have to listen to what they're saying back to you, whether it's nonverbal or verbal. What does your audi- how is your audience reacting to what you're saying or what you're writing? That's exactly what I do with either a candidate that I'm presenting to a client employer when I'm conducting a search or when I'm coaching a candidate who's looking for a new opportunity, exactly what you do. Because quite often, people do not understand the other side. And that's what you're saying. You have yeah. to understand the other side. Yes. You, you can't just sit there and spout information without understanding how it's being received and, and how you need to shape it so that it's being received the way you want it to be. I guess you want to find a resonance with your audience. That's, well, that's probably about, a good way to put it. Yeah, think about physicians. You know, you go in um, a number of years ago, I wrote a monograph on measuring physician performance. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing the research, I discovered that there was a study in which physicians told their patients they should eat uh, more starch. Mm-hmm. Well, he didn't explain, or she didn't explain, <laughs> what kind of starch and what did they end up eating? Mm-hmm. Laundry starch. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a classic breakdown in communication. Yes. So um, your book should definitely, I think, help everyone understand the need to communicate clearly. Yes. To, to specific audiences and to understand those audiences. The whole first chapter is taken up with nothing but understanding audiences and how they receive information. And, and also, importantly, there is no such thing as a passive audience anymore. Now they're going to blog right back at you. They're going to email right back at you. They're going to Twitter. You're, you're, there's an active audience these days. That's not my phrase, but that's a very true phrase. The mm-hmm. audience is active, and you have to take into account that they're going to come back at you, and it's not going to be a one-way conversation. Your personal life. You are married for 40 years to Joni. Yes. A beautiful nurse that you met at the University of Wisconsin. Yes. I was very fortunate not only to get a good education, to, to meet a marvelous lady. You have two children, Wendy and Ryan, Mm-hmm. and two grandchildren, Meredith and Edwin. Right. I am intrigued that you are passing your love of writing onto seven-year-old Meredith by collaborating with her on a series of children's books 
about the superhero Dragon Girl. Dragon Girl, yes. It all started when she was about three or four. I would tell her bedtime stories about these little creatures called Googlies and Boogities that I made up. Well, Meredith loved the stories, but when she turned about six or so, she announced that those were too young for her, that she wanted to hear stories about dragons. So I began to tell her stories about dragons. Well, of course, Meredith's a very creative little girl, and she began to chime in with her own ideas about what dragons could do and and all about, you know, the the purple dragon is a fat, uh, funny dragon, and then the green dragon is a good dragon, the red dragon's a bad dragon. And then we began to think about a dragon girl, a little girl who was... Uh, who had a, uh, uh, a spell cast on her by a witch that made her turn into a dragon. But she's such a good little girl, such a nice little girl, that it didn't take. And now she can control what part of, what dragon part she wants to have. And she is a superhero. Well, Meredith, has, Meredith and I have started collaborating on this book, and I'm learning from her about how you invent things, because she's so creative. I'm hoping, Dennis, that when your first book is published uh, with Meredith, I know that you are co-authors, is that correct? Absolutely. She's inventing the, the family and the little girl and telling me what happens, and I'm basically writing it down. I hope that you set up a website for her. We will. We certainly will. Meredith's mother, Wendy, is Dr. Wendy, the pediatrician. Right. You are planning a book with her titled Your Alien Baby. Yes. Explain further, please. (laughs) Well, pediatricians, as I learned from my daughter, will tell you that babies are not small adults. That's one of the jokes among pediatricians. Well, it's just, uh, they're just little adults. Babies are very different creatures, physiologically, perceptually, developmentally. And what pediatricians want to get across to parents that there are all these differences that they need to understand if they're to be if they're to have a healthy baby, a healthy infant from zero, from birth to 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 one year old. And so, my daughter and I are writing a book called Your Alien Baby. The book Your Alien Baby is all about the differences that babies, uh, the, the many profound differences between babies and, and adults, and what this means in terms of their, their health and the diseases they get and how to treat them. Do you think that the idea or the objective of the book is to primarily help parents manage their babies in a more effective, efficient manner? Is that what your goal is, Janice? Well, that's that's one thing to help parents understand how to how to uh, keep their babies healthy, but also to help the relationship between pediatricians and and uh, and parents, because pediatricians often uh, see parents who are are just beside themselves with with fear because of something that looks like it would kill a human, an adult, but it's perfectly normal in an in infant, and they'll recover just fine. Well, and the second, the other purpose of the book, of course, is to get across the science, what science knows about infants now. Um, and they're, they're absolutely miraculous creatures, infants, because imagine a creature that go, goes from being a, a water breather or a, a liquid breather all of a sudden to becoming an air breather in, in the space of, you know, a half an hour. And that's what babies do when they're born. 
So we're trying to get across the amazing science as well as the practical knowledge that parents need. You have transferred your ability to identify right fits to your personal life. How did you know 40 years ago that Joni would be a right fit wife? Oh my goodness, it was it was easy. <laughs> we were in we were at a party together and she was literally across a crowded room. And I was talking about being from Texas, and all of a sudden this beautiful, dark-haired, long, dark-eyed, long-haired girl stood up and said, oh, you're from Texas, do you know somebody? And she came over and started talking to me. And I knew that she was so, she appeared, she was so beautiful and so smart and so, so uh, uh, personable that this was somebody I needed to get to know. And so as we got to know each other, it was sort of, it was a fit. It was an absolute right fit. It was a fit 40 years ago, and it's a right fit today. Would you say that both of you have changed over the years, and maybe there are some things that you had to change about yourself to keep the fit right, or would you say that that was not necessary to make any changes so that the fit would be maintained? Well, I think we both recognized that there was a, a, a fit that we that we each of us wanted in our lives. Uh, Joni loved to be a home, being a homemaker and raising the children and doing all the things that, that homemakers need to do. That is being an economist and a psychologist and, <laughs> and, and you know a planner and and a builder. And, and she literally designed our cabin uh, up in the mountains and and she's built most of the downstairs of the cabin. So she, there was a whole set of things that she wanted to do to fit her life, and there was a whole set of things that I wanted to do to be a right fit in my life. And, and they both, we complemented each other. And so although we've changed over the years, I think it's sort of we've changed with each other, we've changed together so that we've maintained the same fit that we've always had. Dennis, you are a win without competing man. I, thank you. That, that's, a, that's a compliment indeed, Arlene. Thank you so much. You are soaked in passion. You know your core identity. You compete with yourself, raising the bar higher and higher. You understand right fits. You manage the process to achieve your goals. You have mastered the art of the pitch. You think outside the box. Thank you for joining me today. I wish you much success with explaining research you have done a stellar job of explaining who Dennis Meredith is. Thank you so much, Arlene. My pleasure, and I hope you will join me again soon. I sure hope to. Upcoming shows. Please join me again on Wednesday, December 9th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I will interview Mary Beth Garber the president of the Southern California Broadcasters Association since 1998. Garber serves as a consultant for 62 stations in Los Angeles, the biggest radio market in the world in terms of dollars. Garber has been recognized as Broadcaster of the Year by Radio Inc. Magazine and Jenny Award for Excellence in Radio by American Women in Radio and Television. 
She has also been named as one of the 20 most influential women in radio by Radio Inc. every year for the past 10 years. Archive shows. To listen to archive shows, please visit drbarrow.com, that's drbarrow.com, and click on the date of the show description that interests you to connect to Blog Talk Radio. I suggest listening to Ann Edwards, New York Times bestselling author, celebrity biographer, Pulitzer Prize nominee. Sherilyn Kenyon, New York Times bestselling author, queen of the vampire novel, according to Publishers Weekly. Jan Constantine, general counsel for the Authors Guild, who won the landmark copyright decision against Google. I would love to hear from you. Please email me, D-R-B-A-R-R-O, that's Dr. Barrow, at winwithoutcompeting.com or call 310-441-5305. To learn more about the Right Fit Method, my book, Win Without Competing, and me as a professional speaker, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarrow, that's drbarrow.com, and for search services, barrowglobal.com. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road, and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, Founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc.